Psalm 58 has been asked that we mark that, and certainly we're happy to do that. It follows very closely in number the one that we just sang together, and as we make preparation for that for the next few moments, to give some thought to another portion of that last book in the Bible, the 66th book, the book of Revelation. As was mentioned earlier by Brother Roger during those announcements, certainly, again, appreciative of the prayers that uh, you might utter on our behalf for the gospel meeting at the Liberty Congregation beginning next Lord's Day morning and continuing through Wednesday evening, services 7 o'clock each evening, including the Sunday service. And certainly here as we continue to think about the uh, talented and eager men that should be bringing the lessons and teaching the Bible studies, this congregation continues to be so wonderfully blessed in that regard. And the eldership and even all of us certainly thankful to have the men with their talents and their willingness even as we have here in such abundance at the Pippin Church. As we have been studying in the book of Revelation, now for a number of Sundays we began this series of studies to parallel our youngsters and their preparation for the Bible Bowl. And during the course of our studies we have already advanced through the first seven chapters of the Revelation, finding in that a number of very powerful and somewhat remarkable scenes before our eyes. All the while, we perhaps might most recently come to the realization that last Lord's Day evening, we were able to appreciate specifically those chapters occurring in Numbers 5 and 6, and even as we looked at them together with chapter 7, we learned a very remarkable scene, that there was a seven-seal book in the right hand of the Father, the one on the throne, and only the Lamb was found worthy to look upon it, to take it, to loose the seals, and to reveal what was contained in it. And from that point, a number of rather revivid and things that you and I can imagine began to take place. However, we began to notice in chapter 6, as the seals were loosed, that it was a rather dire scene with horses of various colors, and we learned some remarkable lessons even last Sunday evening about the thoroughness of what is represented there is the lessons that you and I can take from it. As we came to chapter 7, we noticed the impressiveness of sealing the servants of God. And there was that number, the 144,000, and also that innumerable number. And with that, the chapter closed and brings us tonight to chapter 8. Over the next few moments this evening, let me invite you to consider with me chapters 8 and 9 as we look at this central section this next matter in which we learn very powerfully and vividly something special. I've tried to highlight it at the bottom. The book of Revelation, as you know, presents a number of sevens. There's, of course, the seven seals upon that book, and there are the seven trumpets that shall also be found in due order, and there's the seven vials or bowls that shall occur later. But it's somewhat interesting to notice that as the seventh seal is loosed, which is the one coming before us tonight, Actually, the totality of that loosing will take us through four chapters, chapters 8 through 11. And as the course of that unfolds, this will in fact also be also the matter of the trumpets as well. And so tonight, without further ado, let's turn our attention to the 8th chapter of the Revelation and find in there some additional matters that teach us about the continuing unfolding of God's plan and His will in regard to these matters. First of all, the chapter begins with the loosing of the seventh seal. That is to say, that last one upon that roll, and as we noted just a moment ago, a number of things over the next few chapters will at least indirectly relate to this one. After all, notice how it begins. There was silence in heaven for half an hour. 
we understand back from chapter 4, verse 8, that those four living creatures, day and night, praise unto God, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And yet here suddenly there is a protracted period of silence reminding us of the momentous nature of what's about to happen. It's almost as if in silence the attention is garnered of one and all and here over the next few verses, in the next few chapters in fact, a number of remarkable things take place. John next appreciates seven angels and each one is given a trumpet. And as we see that those trumpets are about to sound in order over again the next couple of chapters, we find remarkably that the things poured forth upon various and sundry elements of earth or the human family are things that should captivate us, capture our attention because dramatic lessons are here unfolded. As one thinks about a trumpet, we might remember in the Old Testament that more than once those trumpets heralded matters of judgment and warning. For instance, in the book of Numbers, when much description was given concerning those trumpets, as well as in the book of Exodus, they were used quite often to sound warnings from God through the trumpeter to the people. Might these trumpets here be sounds of dire warning? Might it be matters that were to be greatly appreciated by those of that day? Warnings in regard to things that they should appreciate because it was a momentous thing about to take place. Surely, as one gives thought to that, we next notice, certainly from the closing verses, the ones that were read in our hearing a moment ago from Brother, by Brother Greg, that from verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9, not everyone heeded the warnings. In fact, sad to say, when God ushered the urgency and the need for repentance, they refused to heed that. Might we keep that in mind as we look at what happened next? After each angel was given a trumpet, <clears throat> we next notice the appearance of yet another angel. And this one, as verses 3 and 4 tell us, much incense was given to this angel. And in fact, it was told to make that proper offering again in verses 3 and 4. But with it, isn't it remarkable that that which was offered along with it was the prayers of the saints? Specifically, the reading of verse number 4, "...and the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints..." ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And almost immediately, we are here reminded of a penetrating lesson, not only for those of that day, but certainly for us as well. May we never underestimate the power of prayer. May we never fail to appreciate that which can be wrought by it and as a result of it. For here we have individuals who in that antique era, it may be that there were very few in power willing to listen to the Christians. Very few who in positions of civil government or authority, for instance, or even otherwise, would have had an ear to hear what a Christian had to say. We well remember quite often their persecution was dire, extreme indeed. And yet here, there's one on the throne willing to listen to them. Here it was, the prayers of the saints rising with the incense offered by that angel. And as such, their prayers were heard in heaven. And today, isn't it still the case? From James 5, verse 16, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And isn't it also true from 1 Peter 3, 12, that the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and His ears are open unto their prayers. But of course, the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Our prayers are meaningful, they're powerful. And how sad it is if we refrain or if we forget or we're negligent in regard to that matter of prayer. 
it is with that thought in mind, here's a picture. You'll notice this is an artist's rendition again of the trumpets that went with these seven angels. And you can, of course, count them and appreciate that there are seven of them in the picture. And as each one was given that particular trumpet, we have used that to help us appreciate this lesson concerning prayer and the vitality and the ever-present need of it. Is it any wonder that Jesus said men ought always to pray and not to faint? Luke 18, 1. With those lessons, in fact, before us, it perhaps now is our place to notice the lessons at the bottom of that slide, which in fact shall lead us to the next one. That angel, of course, that other one that was listed, not one of the seven, but this one, in fact, we're told, filled the censer with fire from the altar and then cast it to the earth. And with it, a number of things followed. Specifically listed are these. Voices, thunderings, lightning, and an earthquake. And it would seem on that occasion we have one of the first matters in answer to that plea of the saints back in chapter 6, verse 10. Where on that occasion they uttered, How long, O Lord, holy and true, shall it be before the cause for which we died is vindicated? And now God, we see, hurls in essence through the power of this angel the character of some destruction and great terrible wrath upon some upon earth. What's going to befall them and what shall take place? The next verses shall reveal it. But we begin to notice in light of that that the angels now begin to sound one by one with those trumpets. When the first angel sounds, we begin to appreciate the following. The first trumpet sounds, verse number 7. It says, The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and a third part of the trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. We, of course, have a very destructive scene, a scene in which the third part of various things, and including all the green grass, was consumed and destroyed. Almost immediately upon reading the listings and the descriptions of these various trumpet blasts, we're reminded of some of the features of the plagues that came upon the Egyptians back in the book of Exodus. In particular, with regard to this one, doesn't it seem remarkably similar to the seventh of those plagues back in the book of Exodus. On that occasion, might we recall that when that seventh plague came, remember there was fire mingled, of course, with hail. And we also remember that there was great destruction in regard to what came upon earth as a result thereof. There were several similar things about this one. Again, hail mingled or mixed with fire. As you can appreciate furthermore, great punishment came upon the, the ones being described here. Can we not also learn perhaps another lesson? In the book of Exodus, that destruction came upon the Egyptians, the one who were, who were persecuting God's people. The children of Israel were in Egyptian bondage. However, God had given decree, let my people go. And the Pharaoh was unwilling to do so. And now these plagues, of course, came upon them. But God's people, the people of Israel, were in fact not punished with that same thing. The hail didn't come upon the people of Israel, only upon the Egyptians. We notice here that there's also that lesson of protection for those that are the saints of God. Those who hold faithful and true, it does not say, of course, they don't suffer some consequences of that sin that others may do, but they are not punished for the reason of it. It is in light of all of that, we close that by noting there were some difficult times, of course, to accompany this first trumpet blast. 
But notice it wasn't fully destructive because only a third, it says. Not a full or all of it. Perhaps that third reminds us that this was a lesson for those who did emerge from it, that they should learn a lesson and that they should repent and that they should in fact change the manner of their doing and turn to that which was and should be the lesson of God. But beyond that, we come to the second trumpet blast. As you can give feeling to this picture, it highlights again an artist's hopeful picture for you and me as we look at the extreme circumstances surrounding the first trumpet blast. With it, you can gain some of the appreciation, but some of it will also attach to the second. And it is in that second we arrive at the following. The sounding of the second trumpet, and immediately, verse number 8, And the second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain, burning with fire, was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. And with that, this brief description of the second trumpet blast is given. Here are some thoughts that it seems should go along with it. First, there again is much destruction. It isn't total in the sense that that fraction one-third is again listed. We again seem to see a dramatic correspondence to one of those plagues in the book of Exodus. This time, Exodus 7, verses 19 and following the first plague, where again we saw the waters of the Nile and the waters of Egypt touch to where they became destructive, turned into blood they were. And in that destruction, we again see some things here. It says the third part became blood. It does read very similarly, doesn't it? We begin to see God's harsh terms of wrath, his terms of punishment, His terms of reaction to those that were opposite His people and those who had served to punish also comes to bear, as we notice, some other Old Testament passages in which similar language is presented. Zephaniah 1 verse 3 as well as Jeremiah 51 verse 25. In that latter passage, again, a mountain was described as being a part of God's position inasmuch as He was able to punish those who opposed His will. Here we definitely seem to see God's wrath poured forth upon some who were very much opposite His plan and will. And as such, the dramatic lesson that closes it, it seems should challenge all of us to appreciate that if God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 We, of course, have only begun in terms of the two trumpet blasts because we now come to the third one. We notice this one involves something rather different. There's a star that John sees fall from heaven. And this star has a name. It's Wormwood. And we notice that it's also touched upon the reality of Wormwood because we notice one-third of that which was in contact with it also became the same. Let's read that text together. Beginning in verse number 10, And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Whereas before we noticed one-third often was that fraction used to describe the hurtfulness or the damage that was done, we now notice that a... <clears throat> large number of people, men it says, suffered as they died due to the contamination that came from this wormwood. Wormwood was a plant known to be very bitter 
And furthermore, you can appreciate that it had an exceedingly disagreeable taste. And as often as that description is found in the Old Testament, we certainly learn from all those places, and you can see the listing, that it frequently was employed in a symbolic fashion by God as descriptive of means of harsh judgment upon those who were involved in sin, and notably so. Again, those passages identified, and yet again, we can appreciate as that slide concludes or closes. This interesting feature, about one-third, seems to again indicate the dire lesson that was to be learned and that there would be that possibility that those who remain should learn some lessons and make some changes and give ear to that which was the will and certainly the plan of God. With that, you might notice that the fourth angel and its sound will be the last one in this chapter and then the next one shall actually come in the next. But before we look at it, here's one picture. A picture of this falling star indicative of that third trumpet blast. You can see as it does so again, the name of Wormwood reminds us of some of what would attach to this one. The great bitterness and disagreeable judgment that would certainly come upon those opposed to the things of God. And with the chapter closing, with the fourth one, let's read the last two verses of the chapter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. Surely we can conclude from that some things like this. This time there was significant darkness, reminding us of the ninth plague upon the Egyptians. And with that ninth darkness, remember, it was so thick that it could be felt. And of course, it lasted for three full days. In this instance, we notice in verses 12 and 13 that this one lasted not for three days, but rather the third part as it describes. And one more time, we remember there was light where the people of God were in the land of Goshen. It was only where the Egyptians were that there was that darkness. Might this be another way God was teaching those of that day to ever be insistent and earnest to remain, of course, in the light of God's leadership. For if you wander away from it in the darkness with which one can be overcome, that only is terrible darkness in totality. You'll notice that the flying eagle described in verse number 13 had the following words to say. Three woes, indicative of what's next to come. It's almost as if as severe as these first four have been, the next three are only going to be even more severe. And with them, the curtain closes on the chapter, and perhaps in summary we've seen this. There have been attacks on various things, such as the land and the water, on the grass and the trees. We've also seen some men, of course, perish in light of this, but we also notice that there has been an element of protection as specifically is going to be stated clearly as we get to the next trumpet blast in just a moment. With it, let's in fact turn our attention to that which does come before us in the first part of Revelation 9. We've seen the four trumpet blasts, the four blowings of these trumpets, and it has always helped us to appreciate the figurative symbolic way that this book often presents the truth of God. 
now we've noticed the brevity of these four will be very different from the lengthy description of the next one. In fact, with that in mind, let's come to chapter number 9. And let's begin reading in verse 1 and read through, in fact, verse 12. For all of this does, in fact, relate to the fullness of that fifth trumpet blast. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And in those days men shall seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses preparing unto battle, and on their heads were as it were crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months." And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. One woe was past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. Isn't it a scintillating description? Doesn't it cause one to almost perk up with amazing consideration in light of a description like this? And yet, as you and I give thought to it, here are just a few of the features. First, we notice a star, verse 1. John sees fall from heaven. It's clear that this represents an authority. It represents an individual, personal, masculine pronouns are used to describe it. And even the name of the king thereof, of course, is provided in verse 11. Out of the bottomless pit is another part of John's description. We appreciate that this bottomless pit will appear again in Revelation 20. And as the description there is provided, we are led to appreciate it is truly a source of great opposition to God and thus a great source of evil is that, of course, which John now sees. Satan is the one that rules and reigns over such. And as he reigns over it, you'll notice that there's also smoke when the pit is open that bellows and roars out of it. As this smoke reminds us, the great influence that evil can have, it seems to mimic almost identically the discussion of Joel 2, verse number 10. Of particular intrigue are these locusts that are also recognized as a part of that smoke. You'll notice these locusts certainly are representative of these great destroying armies, for their number is so many, and their description is so vast. Quite often we remember the locusts did serve a very clear role in the hand of God in the Old Testament. Again, one of those plagues upon the Egyptians brought great hordes of locusts that almost left nothing in their wake again in the land of Egypt. And later it was also true in Joel's day that the locusts were again in the hand of God to punish His people who had so distantly turned from Him. 
Those locusts were a sense of the judgment of God, and Joel acclaimed it as so. Here, these locusts are again reminding us of the great fierceness that is involved in opposition. You'll notice that these descriptions are but a few of that taken out of that which we and I just read. It is significant that verses 3 and 4 remind us that their disposition was not to harm the green grass, for instance, or the trees, but it was to harm those men, individuals who were not sealed with the seal of God. What a valiant lesson indeed that is. They weren't going to hurt those that were per se the Christians. They were not those who were going to hurt those otherwise, but rather we note that those in chapter 7 who had the seal of God on their foreheads, they were the ones protected from this onslaught. They were the ones protected from this direness and the severity of it. The torment, we're told, was to last five months. We don't expect that to be a literal five months given the many other figurative things in this chapter. If it be the case that we follow the pattern of Ezekiel, the fourth chapter, we might appreciate that at least in that day and time, that the day, of course, in the avenue of God represented a year, that would give us some appreciation, if that be true, of the length of this particular period of torment. These locusts were described as horses prepared for battle, but they wore crowns of gold. Furthermore, they had faces like men, but hair like women, and they had teeth like lions. That is a rather awful picture, isn't it? If you think of the beauty of a woman's hair, but then the teeth of a lion, one almost turns in disgust to think of such a picture. And yet, that's the kind of imagery that's presented before us here. Their tails were like unto scorpions, and oh, what power they had, for there were stings in those tails to inflict that torment for that period of some five figurative months. The king is described in these two languages. There is a badon in Hebrew, and that word means destruction. And there is a polyon, again in Greek, and that means the destroyer. Later in chapter 12, we shall find that Satan is himself called the destroying one. He is behind the difficulties that all these are experiencing, and he's behind all this opposition. He has ever been, and ever shall he be. It's no wonder that we're told throughout the sacred scriptures that there are the two great kings. There is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ and there is the devil. You and I make the choice as to who we serve. We, of course, gain a feeling from a book like Revelation about the awfulness that awaits certainly those on that final day when they are put in place to receive, of course, their just works from serving the devil. And isn't it true that even a nation not only individuals, but nations, also from both Old and New Testament, crush beneath the brunt of the wrath of God when His punishment is brought upon them for their evil. It reminds us, doesn't it, about our own cherished land and the need that is ours to ever remember that it is righteousness that exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Isn't it true from Psalm 9 verse 17 that any nation that turns against God shall be turned into hell. That was a statement, of course, made by the psalmist of old. But doesn't it remind us of the impressiveness of the New Testament today? It is to be noted concerning all of these that it does bring us to some of these thoughts as we at least prepare to give thought to the sixth trumpet. Having looked at these five, we have certainly seen a number of things relating to the internal destruction and ruin of those subject to this description. 
But now in this fifth one, we've also seen the character of protection for those sealed as the servants of God. And how that awful doom comes upon all the others. No wonder when we arrive at chapters 13 and 14 and 15, we shall in fact be reminded of at least some of these lessons couched in language that again is so impressive in its imagery. As we come to the sixth trumpet, it shall not only finish this chapter but also extend somewhat into the next. But beginning in verse number 13 it reads, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw horses in the vision, and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions." And out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents and had heads and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and, and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see, nor hear, nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. And again, the vividness of the sixth trumpet blast. With it, you might appreciate that John heard again some rather remarkable things. Beginning again in verse number 13, these are some of the things noted for us. And of particular intrigue is that John in verse number 15, four angels were loosed from that Euphrates River. The Euphrates, of course, was a, was a well-known river in that part of the world. And you and I have been exposed to it from really the book of Genesis onward. A river that has behind it some interesting features and thoughts. First of all, you might notice that these angels released from this place, that river had often been a place that was a dividing line where there was great advance militarily once it had been crossed and once there was advance beyond it. And so it seems as there is a description of a great attack, a great attack, if you please, again, against a specific set of beings or individuals opposed to that will of God. These angels had been prepared for a long time for the work that they were now about to do. And that preparation takes us into verses 16 and following, in which we have descriptions not unlike this. The horses are such that the riders with those breastplates of many colors were listed. There was blue and there was yellow, for example. And of each of them, we begin to appreciate that the mission led them to accomplish. Verse number 18 by these three was the third part of men killed. And thus there was a great slaughter. There was a great bringing about of death, if you please. And with that coming of death, we notice that there was a great power in both the mouth and tail. Doesn't that help us appreciate that in verses 20 and 21, 
it's perhaps time to make some observations. What might this help us listen to and what might it help us appreciate even to this day? First of all, these attacks, as we noted earlier, though from our perspective it may appear that men can make advances against the will of God, and though at times it may appear that they actually are winning the battle against God, it ultimately shall never be so. For God always is in control, isn't He? And He does rule in the kingdoms of men. Those beleaguered saints of that day needed to remember that, and you and I need to remember it today. The fact that the number four occurs so often seems to suggest the completion of God's will relative to these matters. In all points and in all details, that which God had decreed, in fact, was done. Beyond that, we notice the myriads of those horsemen and the impressiveness that associates to the evil that is specifically mentioned in verses 19 through 21. Evil. Those saints of that first century era were in fact in positions to be confronted with such dire opposition, so much so that from time to time their life hung in the balance. Often those that were threatening them, those that were seeking to hurt them, were individuals who of course had little if any interest in the things of God and often made fun of the same. And yet these Christians in an interest to remain loyal and to remain faithful and to remain true found themselves on the short end of life itself here. This tells us, verse 20 again, notice what would have been a nice intent. And the rest of the men which were not killed, so not everyone was slaughtered, but those that weren't, it says, by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands. God had sounded warnings. He had sounded an intent that men might learn some things and hopefully make an appropriate alteration and change, but it wasn't so. They repented not of that which had been their deeds. They repented not of that which was their intent. They repented not of that which had been descriptive of their way of life. As such, God's chastisement of that day and even in our own, according to Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 5, is a reminder to you and me that He chastens those that He loves. And He loves each of us and would wish us to so conduct ourselves right in His sight. But He does leave that decision to us. If we will be neglectful of the chastening, hard-hearted with respect to it, then we too shall find ourselves far separated from Him and ultimately, of course, in a very dire state indeed. It is with those in mind. We come to the ending of that chapter and the ending of our lesson this evening. We have seen much in the blowing of these six trumpets. We, in fact, have seen so much that it is really amazing to reflect upon all of it. There was first a great scene of holiness as the prayers of those saints ascended and as the angels did the bidding of God. We noticed as one trumpet after another was blown, there was great harm to certain things that were listed, be it waters, be it grass, be it trees, be it individuals. And as all of that took place, it was the command of God that it be so. These angels weren't acting apart from the decree of heaven. And as that destruction came, it helps us see in the last two especially, trumpets five and six, the issue of those locusts and the bottomless pit and the angel that allowed the locusts to escape and the great evil and the influence that came therefrom. And finally, that sixth trumpet that John will react to as we see chapter 10 on our next occasion. 
Tonight, perhaps we can each ask ourselves this question. As we've listened to these descriptions about that which befell those opposed to the plan and will of God, how frightful it shall be as one thinks about thee in that final day of judgment. We recognize that many passages in the Bible tell us about the nature of that day. In 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There will be a frightful time awaiting those who have lived foolishly, who've lived apart from God's plan for salvation from sin. One of the lessons in Revelation is a reminder that even nations bow ultimately and are crushed beneath the power when they oppose the God of heaven. We know that happened many times through history, both Old and New Testament. And certainly, individually, it shall happen on that great and final day. Since it's the case that everyone shall receive according to the deeds done in the body, what have been the description of the deeds in your body to this point in life? Could you happily stand currently covered with the blood of Christ, thankful for the occasion of your obedience to the gospel, and ready to live faithfully until death? Or to this point, have there been misgivings to the point that public awareness and public statement of repentance and confession is in order? If tonight you need to respond publicly to the call of invitation, why not this evening? If you need to become a Christian, it is truly a monumental, joyous occasion. We could celebrate with you and for you, and for that we'd be honored. If you need to respond, realize you must repent of your sins, confess the name of the Christ, and to be baptized for the remission of sins. If you haven't done that, tonight would be the perfect occasion. If you have, but have not remained faithful to the Lord... You have walked away from Him for one reason or excuse or another. Why not come back tonight? These six trumpet blasts remind us that our God is in control. And if you need to respond this evening, why not do that? While together we stand and while we sing.